Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. This is the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Um, kind of a heavy passage uh, for Mother's Day. Uh, you know, uh, just kind of the texts worked out that way. And um, if you're joining us uh, for the first time, uh, our church is actually in a series uh, on Jesus' letters to, to the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, hopefully, uh, for those of you who have been tuning in, what you've been realizing is that um, all of these letters are letters that could have been written to churches in 2021. You know, and as we get ready to reopen our church and start to think about what the future could look like for us, uh, my hope with this series is that it will force all of us to kind of pause and rethink what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our city in this cultural moment. Um, uh, up to this point, um, we've looked at now the churches in Ephesus, in Smyrna, and in Pergamum. And, and the church we're looking at today is the church in Thyatira. Okay? And Thyatira is a bit different from the other cities in that it's, it was the least known and really the least remarkable of the seven cities to receive a letter from the Lord. And that's going to be important when we get into what Jesus has to say to this particular church. Um, many of you know I used to live in Philadelphia. I love Philly. It's a super blue-collar town, a lot of grit and heart. And, um, you know, Philly people, yeah, if you meet like a Philly native, they generally don't like New York. Or New York people, and they, they don't like New York uh, sports teams, and they think their food is overrated, and it's because, um, you know, Philly people have this chip on their shoulder because New York is like that older brother they're always living in the shadow of, right? It's only two hours away. Uh, a lot of people tend to move there after they graduate because that's where the money is. You know, New York is home for the most powerful people in the world, uh, which is why whenever Philly beats New York in anything, um, it feels like they're bringing down the evil empire, right? Well, 
Uh, this is probably kind of how the people of Thyatira felt living in the shadow of these really powerful, influential, well-known cities around them. And so any opportunity to be known and successful was huge for people living in that city. Now, uh, one thing Thyatira was known for were, were these strong trade guilds, okay? And, and the best way to uh, describe these trade guilds is that they were basically the power brokers of that society. So uh, if you wanted any kind of influence uh, whatsoever, you needed to be a member of one of these trade guilds. So think about them kind of like um, much more sophisticated country clubs, okay? It was where networking happened, uh, it was where business deals were forged, and your only ticket to upward mobility was to be, be a part of one of these trade guilds. Well, you can imagine this presented a problem for Christians, because uh, in order to be a member of one of these guilds, you had to attend these big guild banquets, okay? And this meant uh, you had to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, so like you kind of had to participate in the worship of other gods. And then like we saw in Pergamum last week, these idol feasts almost always turned into these huge sexual orgies because there was so much drinking. And so the Christians in Thyatira, they're faced with this predicament, right? You risk uh, potential job opportunities and reputation and social status. Um, you know, are you going to risk all of these things to stand firm in your faith? And now I want to point out kind of two things uh, that I think are really interesting. Okay, first, this is the only letter we've looked at so far where there is no mention of persecution. Okay, so uh, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, you've suffered patiently for me. In his letter to the church in Smyrna, right, Jesus says, you are about to suffer persecution. To the church in Pergamum last week, Jesus talks about the guy, Antipas, who was killed for his faith, and yet there's nothing about the church in Thyatira suffering on account of their, of their faith. So in other words, they're like really liked by the people in their city. And as far as we can tell, they haven't really done anything that would warrant persecution. Like, in, like, if you actually read the text, Jesus has a lot of great things to say about this church. Um, if you look at verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. They're actually doing a lot for their city. They're loving people. They're serving people. Uh, he says they're even doing more than they used to. So they're growing as a church. So on the surface, this is the kind of church a lot of us would want to be a part of, right? A church that is doing great things for the city, a church that is caring and sacrificial, a church where everyone feels like they belong. But this is where Jesus, again, like he's been doing a lot, kind of comes down with the hammer and he says, nevertheless, I have something against you. And he says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idol. Now, um, there's some debate as to whether or not Jezebel was a real person. Uh, most commentators believe this is a metaphorical reference to Jezebel in the Old Testament, who was basically a queen in First and Second Kings. And what she did was she basically tried to combine the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal, okay? And in doing that, 
The goal was to kind of move God out of the picture altogether, and this is exactly what seems to be happening in the church in Thyatira. So on one hand, they're growing in their love, they're, they're growing in their acts of service, but on the other, they're becoming overly tolerant of a lifestyle that does not reflect the way of Jesus. Now, that word tolerance is a buzzword in our culture right now. Right? And a lot, of the, a lot of churches have embraced that word to mean everyone is welcome. Right? And that's absolutely true. Um, here at Citizens, we want everyone to feel welcome. We want everyone to feel like they have a place here. We want people to come as they are. No pretense, no facades. Just come with all your baggage and junk and brokenness. But please don't mistake that for us saying we want you to leave as you are. Okay, we want you to come as you are, but we don't want you to leave as you are. If people left exactly the way they came, there would be no purpose in following Jesus, right? Like if being a part of a church had zero impact on your work and your relationships and on your outlook in life, why go to church at all, right? And this is what's happening in this church in Thyatira. They worship God, but they're also becoming overly tolerant of the way of the world. And, and, you know, and the way that they did this was very uh, interesting. The way that they justified that tolerance was that they rationalized it theologically. Um, so some, some scholars um, you know, write about this church, and basically what this church was saying was, you know, they weren't saying like, hey, I know my lifestyle, um, isn't really in line with my faith. I know this isn't right. This isn't how I should be living my life. No, no, no. That's not what they were saying. They were actually doubling down. They were using the gospel to justify their lifestyle. They were saying, you know what? As faithful followers of Jesus, uh, since we already understand that these idols are worthless, does it really matter if we go through the motions and worship them? Like, hey, if we can have a good time, and make a fortune while following Jesus, why not, right? We're just being wise and shrewd. Why wouldn't we participate in these guild banquets? Everyone needs to stop being so legalistic, stop being a Pharisee. It's not a big deal. Um, you know, it reminds me a lot, you know, uh, when, I, when I was younger and I first started kind of deconstructing my own church experiences, um, I had so many things to say about the Korean immigrant church uh, that I grew up in, right? How they were doing church all wrong, uh, why getting people to go to morning prayer every day was like anti-gospel, how they were so legalistic about everything. And, and to be honest, I still believe a lot of this to be true. But I remember um, feeling like a certain sense of pride that I, as a second-generation Korean-American, was somehow more enlightened than my parents were. Like that my understanding of the gospel was deeper than theirs was because I really understood grace. But, you know, as I get older, like if I'm, if I'm going to be really honest with myself, I realize that so much of what I tried to claim was a, a more enlightened faith was really just a way for me to have my cake and eat it too. Because, I mean, like, who wants to wake up at 5 a.m. to pray? Like, who wants to give away their hard-earned money, right? Like, I, I didn't want to sacrifice my time and energy for a group of people that I don't always get along with. And so I used the gospel 
to rationalize my faith in such a way that I could still call myself a follower of Jesus and yet live the life I always wanted. Like to be a Christian by title, but not have that affect any part of my life. And Jesus vehemently opposes this. Listen to what he says in verse 22. He doesn't hold back any punches. He says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. I mean, there's not really a way around those harsh words, right? And what this church in Thyatira had subscribed to was what the great uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace, a grace without price, a grace without cost. Uh, he writes this, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He's saying, yes, the grace offered to us in Jesus is absolutely free and completely undeserved, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's nothing you can add to that. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing we could do to earn this gift given to us. But we cheapen that grace when that grace has zero impact on our lives. Um, when I graduated uh, from high school, uh, as a graduation gift, my parents got me my first acoustic guitar. Okay, it was a beautiful uh, Larravee D03, uh, Brazilian rosewood. It was a, it was, and that was a huge deal because one, I wasn't expecting it. Um, I didn't necessarily do anything to deserve it, and and up to that point, um, I had been playing on this old classical guitar in my home uh, that belonged to my dad. And if you know anything about guitars, um, you know that uh, acoustic guitars use steel strings, while classic Classical guitars use nylon strings, which are way easier to play, which are way easier on the fingers. So I come home with this amazing instrument, but uh, I realize that I can't play it for more than like 15 minutes because my fingers are hurting too much, right? And so one day, um, my dad is, is walking by my room. He sees the guitar that he bought me on the ground, and he sees me playing the classical guitar again, and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, why aren't you playing the Larvi? You know, and I'm like, ah, it, it just makes my fingers hurt too much. And he was like, so you're just going to let that beautiful guitar sit there uh, and, and you're not going to do anything about it. Like, do you know how much I paid for that thing? You know, and like most Asian parents, he, he's like, if you're not going to play it, I'm going to give it to someone else. You know, and I, I was like, no, 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 no. I'll play it. I'll play it. Right. And obviously at the end of the day, it wasn't about the money. It, it was the heart of a father, right? Who was like, hey, I got you this guitar because I, I knew it's what you wanted and because I want you to have the very best. And so, yeah, it's going to hurt a little at the beginning because you're used to the classical, but don't you want to experience the glory of this instrument, right? And, and in the same way, Jesus is looking at this church in Thyatira that's unwilling to fully let go of their old ways of being, and he's saying, why aren't you living the life I bought for you? The gift of grace you've been given was free. It was free to you, but it wasn't free to me. It cost me everything. And Jesus is not saying that to condemn us. He's saying, I want you to experience life to the full. I want you to know what deep fulfillment and purpose feels like. I don't want you to live like a prisoner anymore. 
And he's saying it's going to hurt at times. You're going to have to give some things up, but it's going to be worth it. And, and, and you know, at the end of the day, it, it's really not about the food sacrificed to idols. It's not about the sexual immorality. Like, please don't leave today um, thinking that, oh man, I, like you have to come up with a list of things you're not allowed to do anymore. Honestly, Jesus isn't so concerned about what we do. He's more concerned about the heart behind what we do because Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about real heart change. You know, you know one of the things that all married people have to navigate uh, is their relationship with their in-laws, okay? Uh, we spend an entire session during premarital counseling on in-laws. Why? Because... Uh, any married person on this Zoom chat will tell you that when you get married, you don't just marry a person, you marry their whole family, okay? And it's uh, always fun meeting different couples and learning about like the different dynamics that exist between that couple and their in-laws. And you know what's interesting? There are two kinds of people. Like you could be one of those people who is the perfect son, son-in-law or daughter-in-law who does everything their in-laws ask of them, who fulfills every responsibility, checks off every box perfectly. And the irony is that your heart could be exactly the same as the person who does absolutely nothing for their in-laws, who can't stand their in-laws. The behavior is different, but the heart is the same. And I think it's very telling that Jesus in verse 23, after he says everything he needs to say, adds this. He says, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. He says, whether you're doing great, noble things or blatantly sinful things, at the end of the day, I am the one who searches hearts and minds. And in saying that, he levels the playing field so that nobody can feel like they're better than someone else. He's saying, look, I see through your bad deeds, but I also see through your good ones. And ironically, it's sometimes the very people who live the most outwardly spiritual lives who cheapen God's grace the most because they buy into the notion that you can earn your way to heaven. So maybe throughout this sermon your mind was gravitating toward all those people in your life who in your eyes do not live a, quote, Christian lifestyle, whatever that means, right? And, and maybe you began to judge them in your mind. Maybe, uh, maybe you were thinking about sending them this sermon as like a passive-aggressive way to get a message across, right? But before you begin to point fingers, before you begin to judge and condemn, ask yourself, if you could possibly stand before the one this text says, whose eyes are like blazing fire, the one who can see right through you, the one who could read you like a book, ask yourself if you yourself could pass the test of faithfulness, and I guarantee you, you will say you can't. We wouldn't even last five minutes in God's presence. But you see, on the cross, Jesus the only one who could pass that test was cast on the very bed of suffering he talks about in this letter. And rather than strike us dead, he was crushed on our behalf so that the eyes of God that once burned with blazing fire, with judgment and wrath, now burn with an unquenchable love for you and me.
Jesus closes this letter in verse 26 by saying, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority from my Father. He's saying, look, I know why you're doing what you're doing. I know the reason why you're doing the bad things, and I know the reasons why you're doing the good things. I know what your heart longs for that's driving you to live the way you're living. I see everything. I see your fear of not having enough. I see your need for approval and recognition. I see it all. But if you trust me, I'll give you all those things. I'll give you what you need. And, and here's the real kicker. In the next verse, he says, I will also give that one the morning star. Well, what's the morning star? Well, if you go to the last page of the Bible, in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus is saying, if you trust me, yes, I'll make sure you're provided for. I'll make sure you're protected. But at the end of the day, I'm going to give you myself. The real reward is me. He's saying, in me, you will find everything your heart desires. In me, you will find fullness of joy. In me, you will know that the good life is not an influence, status, or wealth, but in knowing your creator and being known by him. And he's saying, once you have me, then even in the darkest valley of your life, you will know that you have everything you need. And he says, this is what I'm offering to you. And so my question for all of us as we close today is, will you take this gift, this free gift of grace given to us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that you would experience the deep satisfaction of following him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you humbly this morning and um, Lord, it is um, so rebuking uh, to read a letter like this one uh, because so many of us, um, we have, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we have cheapened your grace. You know, we have spoken about your grace. We have uh, attended church faithfully. We serve in our community groups and our respective ministries faithfully. But at the end of the day, there is a part of us that is still unwilling to let go of the life we once lived. There is still a part of us unwilling to give you all of who we are, to surrender all that we are. And some of that is rooted in fear. Some of that is rooted in a deep need for recognition and, and wealth and status Whatever it may be, I pray that this morning you would remind us that on the cross you died so that we would experience the very thing that all of these other things can offer us, that we would experience true acceptance, that we would experience true satisfaction, that we would experience true peace. And so I pray this morning that uh, you would give us hearts of surrender, a heart that says, Lord, we know the ways that we failed you. We know so many ways that things that we have to repent for, and I pray that we would bring all of it and place it at the foot of the cross. 
to lay our burdens at your feet, and to embrace the grace freely offered to us in your Son. Thank you so much for this word. Uh, We want to worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.